Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. For the major part of 1995, just about every Sunday besides an Easter, uh, a Mother's Day or a vacation day or something, we studied the book of 1 Samuel, 31 chapters in length, and covered it during the year 1995, about a chapter a week. Really, I was forced into 2 Samuel. So many people responded, please continue the series. And actually, I, I want you to know several important things about 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is a transition book. And I did, before I even tell you anything about that, I do want you to um, get a picture of the of the big picture of where we are in the entire Bible, and I don't, um, sometimes between services I mess my overheads up and I don't, oh no, there it is, now I've got it. Here you have the history of Israel beginning with creation all the way through the end of the Old Testament. And something that you need to realize is there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the years of bondage, there's Moses, let my people go, there's Joshua, he brings them into the land of Canaan, and then the book of Judges, about 400 years in length, in which Israel is in the land of Canaan, but there's still pockets of resistance, and it's one of the saddest books in the Bible because it's a book of defeat and not living by faith, and God has to keep raising up judges and an awful cycle of rebellion and unbelief. First Samuel, then, is the book of transition, where you go from the time of judges, where there was no king in Israel, to the time of judge, excuse me, the first king, and we saw in the book of First Samuel, Saul becoming the first king. Now... In 2 Samuel, you see David. 2 Samuel entirely will be about the life of David. Now, with seeing that, I'd like to just point out a couple of important things about 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel closes with the end of Saul's reign. We remember in chapter 31, the last chapter, right before Christmas, Saul dies at the arrows of the Philistines. And he commits suicide. He falls on his own sword, if you can remember. And then... Uh, in 2 Samuel begins with the beginning of David's reign. Now there's just one chapter of transition. That's chapter 1. And chapter 1 is this transition between Saul's death and David's reign. In fact, you could then say that in first, the first chapter of 2 Samuel, the chapter we're now getting into, would, has some natural parts to it. 1 is 1, 1 through one sixteen. We will see the report of Saul's death and David's response. So the death of Saul is finally reported to David. I'll explain all of that in just a moment. Um, it's a different report of how 1 Samuel 31 says that he dies. And then in 117 through 27, there's a dirge. David, the great psalm writer, he writes 73 of the 150 psalms. That David writes a, a lament, an elegy uh, for Paul, Saul and Jonathan. And so that's all chapter 1 is, is this report, David's response, and then a dirge that is sung. But we're going to uh, get into that in just a minute. But if you wanted to just get an overview of 1 Samuel altogether, there's several ways we could outline it. It's all about David. You could say it's David's rule over Judah for the first four chapters, and then David's rule over all of Israel the rest of the book. Judah is the southern half of Israel. Or you could call it this, David's triumphs for the first 12 chapters and David's troubles. We are going to see the highs of David's high, and we're going to see the lows of David's low. There are going to be times you may leave here so disgusted with David, you can hardly stand it, and you wonder, how can God love him? But God continues to. One other way we could look at this. 
The first four chapters would be the beginning of David's reign, then promotion and the, str- the strength of David in his prime, f- chapters 5 through 9, and then David's decline, chapters 10 through 20, and then the close of his reign, 21 through 24. Now you remember that since chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, actually since chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, David has been coming on as a prominent character in this book. And so even more so is he now. Now, without, with having said all of that, I, I, there is so much to learn from this. It's absolutely incredible. I want to make just a couple of important comments. You, could, don't, you don't have to look at this yet. Listen to me first, all right? I'll explain more of that in a minute. Keith Kenor writes about the practical, relevant study of the life of David. It's like reading the evening newspaper. There is so much practicality. In fact, I, I have said to somebody recently, after studying Judges and then 1 Samuel and now 2 Samuel, if someone starts to tell me about an event in their life, I go, oh, it sounds like an Old Testament Bible story. And really, the Old Testament Bible stories are so full of relevant, happening, helpful information, word pictures of God and how God deals with us and how much we learn. He goes on to say, if you're plagued by loneliness, study the life of David. If you want to know God in regards to what God considers a humble servant, study the life of David. If you're the youngest in your family and your older brothers and sisters treat you like dirt, study the life of David. Um, If you feel forgotten, study the life of David. Is your schedule full? Study the life of David. Maybe you work with someone who's dishonest or unjust or oppressive. Study the life of David. And on and on it goes. But he goes on to make this comment. He goes, if you've been in a tennis match, like you're at Wimbledon, everyone at Wimbledon, you've, you've seen it, they're like this. We're watching the match. He says, studying the life of David is like watching a vertical tennis match. Instead of horizontally going like this, it's you're, doing, you're looking at David, you're watching heaven. You're looking at David, you're watching heaven. And you see God orchestrating events to bring about David's character development and to develop his faith. And you see God in all different ways. And that is a great way for us to think about this study. One last thing. David's name is mentioned in the Bible 1,127 times. Way more than anybody else. Even Paul. There's a heavy hitter, Paul. He's only mentioned 163 times. David has 54 chapters committed to him about his life. Even Abraham only gets 13. Joseph only gets 14. In those 54 chapters, they don't even include the 73 psalms that David wrote. So David is a heavy hitter with much to learn uh, from in this book. Now, having said that, I'm going to probably take the most time on any one verse that I've ever taken in the history of narrative preaching when I explain verse 1 to you. Would you read verse 1 with me? Look what it says. After the death of Saul... David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived. Now, friends, listen to this. We learn something because we've been reading along that David doesn't know. We already know that Saul's dead. David doesn't know that. David is down in Ziklag. Now, let me show you what happened. Here is Israel. Here's northern Israel. Here's southern Israel. And the last part of 1 Samuel was... David being chased by Saul all around this region, all down here. David is chased and chased and chased and chased and chased, and he keeps getting these narrow escapes, and God keeps delivering him, and these wonderful things keep happening. God keeps protecting David. But after 11 years of being chased around, David finally loses heart, even though God told him through a prophet, don't leave. And even though God delivered him again and again, he grew weary, and he was like one of us. You see, the Bible characters, they're not super people, you know, with, with B.C. written across them, you know, Bible character. You know, look at me. They, didn't, they, they weren't like that. They were people just like you and me. 
And David got discouraged one day. And one day, David says, surely I'm going to die at the hand of Saul. I might as well go into the land of the Philistines. The land of the Philistines, the arch enemy where Goliath came from. That's southwest, right here, this part right here. We can sort of draw the border like this. I'll go in there. Saul will give up looking for me. And so he did. He went to Gath, and he talked to a man by the name of Achish. And Achish, he said, Achish, could I work for you? Could I live for you? Could I, could I help you? I, I, you know, I, it's been terrible where I'm from, and, and could you sort of help me out? Achish goes, here's David, the prime killer of Philistines, the number one general in Israel. He wants to come and work for us. Great, absolutely. And David says, you know, I humbly request a city so I don't have to be bothering you. And so Achish gives David Ziklag, 40 miles to the south of Gath, just to give you a region up. So this is 40 miles. Now, David is down there, and remember, David is not there in the will of God. He's done wrong. But while he's down there, listen carefully. He keeps going on these raids. He keeps going southwest into enemy territory, that is, Israelite enemy territory, down to the southwest. And he keeps killing all these people, wiping them all out, men, women, and children, taking the spoils back to Gath, but telling Achish in Gath, I've been over here in southern Israel fighting Israelites and changing the plunder to make it look like it was Jewish. Now, Achish buys it. David was not only a great poet, a great warrior, a great guy, but he was also a fantastic actor. Because Achish buys it completely. And Achish says, you know what? David is such a stench in the nostrils of Israel, he'll be my servant forever. And so one day, Achish goes, guess what? And he was one of five generals in Israel, or excuse me, in the land of the Philistines. He says, David, guess what? We're going to go battle the Israelites. And you're going to be right there with me. And so the five generals all meet up in the northernmost uh, city of the Philistines. And they meet at Aphek. And as they meet there... Achish and Gath was the last, his, his our regiment was the last one to go through. And as they go through, the four other generals of the four royal cities of the Philistines are there, and they're going like this, and they go, who are these 600 guys at the end? That's David! He's not going into battle, and they take a vote, and the vote is four to one. And then it's four against David going with them to fight the Israelites, one only Achish. And Achish goes, oh, David, it's breaking my heart, but you know I trust you, but I'm sorry you have to leave. David inside had been going, oh, thank goodness what was going to happen, because David was really up against it. He, his sin had found him out. He got caught. So now watch what happens. The Philistines take their five generals to, right at the end of 1 Samuel. They go up here to fight. This is northern Israel. This is deep penetration into Israel. They go up into this deep area to fight. Well, they're going into this deep area to fight, my friends. David is on his way back to Ziklag. He's going south. Now, you've got to realize this is worlds apart in those days, you know, 80 to 100 miles apart. They're worlds apart. But David and his men get back to Ziklag, and guess what they find? The Amalekites had raided the town. There were no men in the town. They burnt the town down. They come over the hill. They look. The town is burnt down. All of their wives, all of their children, all of their spoils are gone. Oh, they fall on the ground, and they weep until they have no more power to weep. And then they decide something. Let's kill David. What kind of loser guy is this? We've lost our wife. We've lost our kids. Now we, we, we don't have friends in Israel. What are we going to do? And David prays to the Lord, and God says, look it, I'll give you strength. Go find them. They're the Amalekites. And they find some stranger wandering way down here somewhere in the wilderness. They find some guy, and he was left for dead by the Amalekites. He goes, I'll show you right where they are. And he takes them, and they recover all of their wives, all of their children, all of their plunder. Nothing was lost. Now, I'm telling you all that because that is all that I just said makes sense now out of verse 1. Okay? Now, wait, no, not, not yet. Don't look down there yet. Just wait one more second. I see all your heads going back like this. Just wait one more second. David and his men and his wives and their children and their plunder are back at burnt-down Ziglag. Picture them sitting around a whole bunch of burned ruins. Okay, now let's look back at verse 1. Look what it says. 
after the death of Saul, which David doesn't know about, I'll throw that in, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in burnout Ziglag two days. You see, I said all of that just to get us into this chapter. I hope you appreciate it, but that you got to understand why the Bible was written. Okay, now watch this, verse 2. We'll go a little bit faster. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, with his dust on his head. Well, watch. David was down here for a few days. The battle was taking place way up here. And after they get back to Ziglag, they're there two days. On the third day, this guy has come some 80 miles to report to David about this battle. And his clothes are torn. Obviously, he said, as soon as you saw him, everybody knew something bad has happened. His clothes are torn, dust on his head. And notice verse 3. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. And of course, the big question, because this was the battle that David was almost in. Remember? He was all the way up to here. He was almost in this battle. What happened, David asked? Tell me. Can you imagine the suspense? All the soldiers leaning forward, listening. Oh, we're going to get first-hand reports on how Saul's doing. Well, here's the report. It's very simple to the point. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This guy had enough knowledge of the history of Israel that you get to the prime matter. They're defeated, and Saul and Jonathan are dead. David says to the young man who brought him the report, just what we would say if we heard such a report. He was in disbelief. He says, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? So David instantly wants proof of this shocking news. And to prove the story... This Amalekite messenger tells this story. Look at verse 6. I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Okay, everybody stop. Look here a second. Where's Mount Gilboa? Right there. Now, in those days, you've got to remember, people would watch the battles. And people would line up on the, on, the, on the sides of the hills. They would watch the battle. And if a whole bunch of people got killed, they would run down there and get the plunder. So he was probably doing something like that. I happen to be up here on Mount Gilboa, no doubt, watching this battle. All right? And watch what happens. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, and I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death and I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took, and then by the way, just in case the story seemed a little bit unbelievable, he pulls out the irrefutable, the irrefutable proof. <laughs> he pulls out the crown, and he says, I have the crown. And of course, David would be very well knowing what that crown looked like. Here's the crown, and here's the band, the, the, the royal signature band that Saul would wear on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, make this quick comment that if you read 1 Samuel 31 and you read this account, they don't mash. In 1 Samuel 31, the arrows are hitting him. It's sort of like Colonel Custer. The arrows are hitting him. And he turns to his armor bearer, probably Doag, remember, the Edomite? And he says, kill me, Doag! And Doag would not dare touch the Lord's anointed. And so Saul falls on the sword and commits suicide. Now, it's amazing to me how scholars can, can really screw things up. I say that humbly. I'm certainly not a scholar. But you can read pages and volumes of volumes trying to, well, what story is true and which one is right? Obviously, 1 Samuel 31 is true. That's a report given in the Bible about the death of Saul. 
So if anything's going to be suspect, it's going to be this guy because we know he's trying to earn brownie points. So there's no question about that. He brings the crown and the, thing, and, the, and the band right to David, and he's hoping to maybe move up in the, in the ranks for doing this because he knew about Saul's. He, he, had, he had some kind of familiar understanding of Israel's history. He knew Saul was very much against David. Well, he tells the story very possibly they're both true, meaning this. In chapter 31, Saul falls on the sword, but, you know, it takes real guts to do that. Excuse the pun. But as you fall on your sword, it may not be so easy to kill yourself falling on your sword. I wouldn't recommend trying that. But he tries to fall on a sword, he can't do it, and maybe he's still alive, and he knows that if the Philistines get him, they're going to molest him. He knows it's going to be very ugly. And so he sees this Amalekite as the battle is pressing. He says, kill me, and the guy does it. He grabs the sword, he grabs the armband, and he makes like crazy to David's camp some 80 miles away, and he comes there tired, worn out, with dust on his head, clothes torn because of mourning. Now, look at, look at the response of David, verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and they wept and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Quite a response. Great deep grieving and mourning. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This is certainly not the response the, the young man thought he was going to get. He thought, I'm going to get rewarded, no doubt. And certainly David's going to be happy. He can go back into Israel and he become king. We know he's the next in line. And, and, and we also know, by the way, from Chronicles, that men, once David was in Ziklag, more men from Judah kept coming over, and David was building a great big army now. We know that. It doesn't say it in Samuel, but it talks about it in Chronicles. And there's many people coming. And this guy obviously knows David's going to be the next king. I got his crown. I'm going to be in on the good side of this guy. David says, weren't you afraid to touch the Lord's anointed? Remember now, in 1 Samuel, on two occasions, David could have easily have killed Saul, and he doesn't do it. And one time, he just cuts the hem of a slip, and David's grieved over even doing that. Remember? David says, don't you have any fear of God-appointed authority? Your own lips sealed your fate. You're dead. Kill him. Boom, he was gone. That's the end of this chapter as far as the narrative goes. Now, 17 through 27, David sits down and writes a eulogy. A, a, a dirge, a, a lamentation. That's actually called an elegy. L listen to this. The first two verses tell us a little bit about it. Look at verses 17 and 18. David took up his, this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan in order that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jazar. Now the two verses before we get to verse 19 tell us a couple of things. Number one, this is really very, very interesting. David, that sometime that very day or sometime soon thereafter, was so grieved over the death of Jonathan and the loss of Saul, he was so grieved over this, that he goes and he writes this lament. Now he gives orders, because now he's about to become king. And the orders that David gave soon thereafter is, this lament would be taught to all the men who learn how to shoot the bow. Now I want you to remember very much what this was like. Everybody in Judah, and then eventually in Israel, that would ever learn in the military how to shoot the bow, they would have to put this to memory. For instance, you know in our Marines, you've seen them marching around, and they're always singing some song, you know? Hey, no, where, no, hey, no, how, you know, hey, no, hey, no, go, you know? 
Where is Susie? Where'd she go? You know, you know that's, that's what they would do, right? You know, that's what they do. Now, I'm pretty corny when I put this together, but I'm trying to get you a feel for it. Very much, look down to verse 19, as they would be practicing the bow in Israel, they would all be saying this. Your glory, O Israel, lies laying on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. That's the way it would be. Now, I probably wasn't that tune, and it was probably much more of a dirge, much more of a lamentation. But David never wanted Israel, just like we don't want to forget about George Washington, and we put him on the money. We, he didn't want Israel to forget about Saul, and particularly Jonathan. And not only that, it's written in the book of Jazar, it says. Now, that is a book of, of the poetical writings of all the history of Israel. Now, this is a very important book because the biblical writers refer to this book all of the time to get accurate knowledge as to history in Israel. And so it also gets put into that book. Now, having said that, let's just quickly notice some of the highlights of this poem. Verse 19 is the beginning of it. It says this, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. Now, the beginning, he doesn't tell you who it is. It actually is the word gazelle there. It's actually the word beauty. He says, your gazelle, your beauty, your glory, O Israel, is laying there on the heights of that mountain, Gilboa. And then he says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's a refrain found three times throughout this lamentation. Next, verse 20. This, this is so significant. We're going to come back to this. But the next concern of King David is this, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. My friends, he's talking about Philistine cities. He's lived in the land of the Philistines. He himself knew. Remember when he came back from battle after he killed Goliath, the women of Israel came out and they danced in the streets and there was big parties and they sang, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and he ran around with the head of Goliath and they put the sword of Goliath in the tabernacle and they worshipped God because of the great victory he had given he knew that they were going to be doing the same thing now in, in the land of the Philistines. They were going to be bragging about Saul's body. They were, going to, they were going to be bragging about Jonathan being dead. They were going to be taking some souvenirs from battle, putting it in their temples. They were going to be praising Dagon. They were going to be cursing Jehovah. And the first thing in David's heart is, oh no, don't let anyone else know about this. No, don't let that information... He, he can't stand. He puts himself into the streets of, of the pagan cities, Gath and Ashkelon, and he hears their rejoicing. And he, oh, he wants it to stop. That is so interesting. We're going to come back to that. It's the, that, that is so interesting. And then, um, look at verse 21. He makes a curse on Mount Gilboa, where the men died. He says, O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. He makes a curse on Mount Gilboa. He says, Jonathan and Saul died there. May you no longer have any more fruitfulness. May, may you never have any more rain or dew. No, it's a great way of honoring those men. And verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return. He's honoring these men. But this is called the lamentation of the bow. Remember Jonathan was shooting the bow all the time? Remember how Jonathan was shooting the bow to get David the signal whether he should leave Israel or not way back early in chapter 18, 19? Remember that? Jonathan was known to be good with the bow and arrow. That's probably why it's the lamentation of the bow taught to all the, the bow shooters in Israel, because he never wants them to forget Jonathan. And there he says, Jonathan was mighty with the bow, and Saul's sword, he, he, he won many, many, many battles. He did not always come back unsatisfied. And it's a way, again, of honoring him. And then look again at verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. 
They, they, were, they died together on the battlefield, in other words. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Boy, what a, what a way of complimenting the king and, and Jonathan. Now, something very subtly comes into play here, everyone. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. One thing I want you to notice. The economy fared very well under Saul, even though he was a maniacal king. And he says, daughter, and isn't it interesting, David himself does not mourn here for Saul, but he calls on the daughters of Israel to mourn. Back in verse 20, he said, I don't want the daughters of the Philistines to rejoice. Now in 24, he calls on the daughters of the Israelites to, to, um, to mourn over Saul. Now that is so interesting because in the next verse, he mourns over Jonathan. Look at this, look at verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Now you have to understand Hebrew poetry. I am just told this from what I'm reading. The whole thrust of this poem is about Jonathan. You know how we know? Go back to verse 19 again. That's the first verse. Look what it says. Your glory, your gazelle, your, your, your best is, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. Now he fills in who that is. Look at verse 25. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Now as he brings this poem to a conclusion, he tells you who that gazelle is. He tells you who that glory is. The glory one slain on the heights of Gilboa is none other than Jonathan. That's the whole point. And now look at this personal lament. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And that's the end of that chapter and of that poem. Now, friends, there's so much to say about many of these things, but one thing you, you, you have to know. Jonathan is the center of this poem. And David laments him, and when he says this, I hate to, it's embarrassing for me to even mention this, actually, but every one of the commentaries I read always makes this comment, I guess it needs to be made, because some perverts, that's all I can say about this, try to make David and Jonathan out to be homosexual lovers. And one of the things they say, see, their love was better than that of women. Now, I just want to tell you, this is not at all what he means. Here's what David is saying. Jonathan had the right to the throne. Jonathan was the one that should have been the next king. Jonathan and I became friends. Jonathan realized God wanted me to be king. Samuel anointed me. Gad made that clear announcement. He knew I wanted to be king. And Jonathan sacrificed everything. His sacrifice of putting himself second and me first was greater than any woman that I've ever known, even my mother and even my wives. And he wasn't putting them down. But even as we know the, 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 the whole idea of submissiveness, as we talked about a couple weeks ago in Marriage of the Family Month, and the whole idea of, of esteeming your husband and, and putting him first in your life as a godly woman should do that. So David says, here, nobody ever put himself so far back and put me so far up as Jonathan. And, and it, again, it probably shouldn't even be mentioned. I shouldn't even have to answer such critics, but I think we should point that out about what this means. Your love is greater than the love of women. Now, that's it. That's the chapter, okay? And my question to you at this moment is, is to ask you this. How could this possibly help us? What difference can it make in our lives? It, it, so you hear a story about a report of death and a guy or one laments and then they write a poem. I mean, what, how, how am I going to live any better in 1996 in Indianapolis, Indiana? I came here to church. You give me all the stories. It's sort of interesting. There's some nice facts there. But what in the world is that going to do for me? Well, just to make things fresh, I changed the overhead, all right? We got a new overhead. 
It looks like this. And I want you to remember that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. All scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training righteousness, including 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now, let's just go a little bit farther. Let's go a little bit farther. How about this? Here's another example. Paul makes this comment. It is written in the law of Moses. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. If you have an ox that's treading grain for you, a farmer, don't put a muzzle. Let him eat while he, while he works. Now, look what Paul says. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher fleshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? His point there is, you take something from the Old Testament about an ox being left to eat while it works, so you should pay your pastor. That's what that's about. Okay, I, I'm not, there, There's no hidden agenda behind that. That's just what it says. All right. And then here, these things you can read. I can't even read that. What's that say? You guys read it. Let's read it together. What's it say? These things happen to them as examples. Yeah, he's, sorry for interrupting you there. Uh, he's writing there in the Old Testament about this. These things happen as examples. They were examples to us. What things? These Old Testament stories, they're warnings, they're examples, they're something for us to learn. So then, the question then to ask ourselves, and this is exciting for me to get to this point, and I, 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 I really, really want to preach hard at this point, and I know the hour is somewhat late, and I shouldn't even point that out to you, but please, don't give in to your... T- Let's get out of here. Let's just listen, okay? 2 Samuel then teaches us what? It teaches us, number one, all authority is established by God and is therefore to be respected and submitted to. David's dealing with this Amalekite messenger may seem harsh in our day. We are taught and encouraged to suspect authority. We look around at authority and it's often looked on as bad, corrupt, or the cause of all our troubles. But David teaches us about authority in this passage, as he did in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, to honor authority. where He would never lift his hand against Saul. He believed that God put Saul there and that God would remove him. David teaches us to respect and to honor the office even when the office holder is bad, stupid, or even maniacal. David couldn't even conceive that a man would lift his hand to kill Saul. How could you do it even if he was begging you to? That's the Lord's anointed. It was God's job to take him out. You should never have done that. Buddy, you're dead by the words of your own mouth. Don't you know I could have killed him a couple of times? I would never even touch him. You see, this is quite radical view of authority. But does it, is it spoken of in the New Testament? Oh, yes, it is, my friends. Look right here. In Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, how can it be any clearer than that, my friends? We must be submissive people all through, for instance... You can continue to read there, but for sake of time, I want to move. Peter says the same thing. Look, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or as the governors who are sent him to punish those who do wrong. So we need to have an attitude of submission and, and honor towards those whom God has put over us, even if they're bad and maniacal. We need to understand that. 
it seems to me we've lost it in our day. It seems to me like we think it's okay to be cynical and critical about police or about the president or about the governor or hear the jokes about politicians all the time. And I realize there's some sad things going on. And I realize that, that, that I'm not saying these are the answer to everything, but I do know this. There's a great deal about authority that is being taught here in this chapter to us. And even, even this, if there was one guy that was David's thorn in the flesh, if there was one guy that was out to get David, if there was one guy that was an enemy of David, it was Saul. But David would never touch him. In fact, it teaches us this in Romans in interpersonal relationships. Look at this. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it is mine to avenge. I'll repay, says the Lord. What we're supposed to do is love our enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil just because someone else is evil. Don't you get overcome with it. You overcome evil with good. Come on now. The whole idea is not to get mad, to make threats, to be hostile, to be mean, to say we're not going to vote, we're all not going to pay taxes and do all this. The thing to do is to be submissive, good citizens, and in all areas of our life where we're under authority, you can be kept in God's will. You can know where God's will for your life by rightly dealing with authority. So that's principle one, and I want to get through that one rather quick, but I think I made the point. Principle two that we learned from this. I, I just love this. This is where I want to preach on. This is where I really want to get in. First service, I hardly got to even preach on it. But look at this. What is it like to truly have a heart for God? Listen, David is the man after the heart of God. And this chapter tells me some things about God. This is a killer point. Watch this. If you have a heart for God, you have a deep concern for the glory of God. Let me make my point. David, in verse 20, now look at verse 20, hurts deeply over the death of Jonathan and the lost battle. But get this. He can't stand the thought of Israel and Jehovah's name both being dragged through the mud and mocked by the enemy of the Philistines. And he says, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in Ashkelon, don't let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Now, he's just lost his best friend, he's just lost his number one enemy, and now it looks clear that the 11 years of trials are over and he's about to go back into Israel, but you don't see him rejoicing in that at all. His heart is captured by this one thought, oh, I don't want God's name to be put down. There was such a deep love for God in his name. No wonder he was the man after the heart of God. He truly cared about the glory of God. He cared about God's people, even when both had nothing to do with him personally. You see that? This wasn't going to affect him. In fact, the circumstances, the news could have bettered things for him. But he's still grieving. Because he cares about God's glory. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in Ashkelon. Let me tell you something. David had come back to the victory parties where the women danced. He'd also brought back spoils into Gath, and he'd seen what happens. He'd seen them throw parties. He'd seen them mock God. He'd seen the wild orgies. He'd seen them delight in their pagan celebrations. He'd seen them rejoice and give praise to Dagon. And that whole time he was living there, it had to be a grievous thing for David, much like um, a righteous man living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And David can't stand the thought of all this. He truly cared about God's glory. And allow me to ask you this question and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. Do you hurt over failure of Christianity even when it doesn't affect you? Do we really care when God's name is mocked? I'm going to tell you the way it was. 1987, we heard the news of Jimmy Baker. Shortly later, we heard the news of Jimmy Swaggart. And then you could go to a Baptist convention and let me tell you, you would hear the jokes. Oh, it was big. The gates of heaven have been jimmied. Ha, ha, ha. You hear about this, you hear about that. You turn on your radio stations and one 
unsaved man after another would mock Christianity because of the fallings of these men. I must confess to you that in 1987, when I heard about them, because both Baker and Swaggart's their theology is a little bit different than mine, I was sort of glad in my heart secretly. I thought, well, that'll teach that brand, that kind, that group of Christians a lesson or two. Maybe they'll learn something. But I want you all to know in this room that King David never would have done that. I want you to know that King David cared so much for the glory of God that he would have said, publish it not on NBC. Don't let CNN proclaim this. Don't let those radio talk show hosts mock God's name. Don't let Letterman and Carson and, and, and Leno mock the name of God because of this. Don't let this happen. Oh, and he would have been concerned. Not, not with the carnal attitude of now we're better than this other group that I had in my heart and I saw many others have. David said, rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. David, this, our Lord Jesus, the son of David, said, blessed are they that mourn. Mourn over your own sin, mourning over sin in general, mourning over God's name being dishonored. The scripture says from the psalmist, if you love the Lord, hate evil. You know what you weep about and what you laugh about tells a whole lot about you? You know that, my friend? What is it that you weep about? If the only time you weep is when you personally have got some problem, oh, my life is just so bad. That tells a whole lot about the center view. Guess who's the center in your life? You. And a good question is asked, when's the last time we wept over something other than what just directly affected us? I'll tell you a person that was like this, my grandma Shepherd. My grandma Shepherd died in her 90s. She was blind the last 30 or 40 years of her life. She never got to see me. Every time I saw her, she was my blind grandmother. I'd go visit her on the way to and from Florida. She lived in Deland, Florida. And you'd walk into her house, and I'm not kidding you. I don't mean once or twice. She'd always come up and stay with us. She, was in a, she lived in a nursing home in Deland, Florida with, among Christians with the Christian Missionary Alliance. And, and I'm going to tell you, she would come up and spend two or three weeks with us in the summer. It, 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 it was back then, especially in the early days when my heart wasn't touched by the Lord yet, I, I, it was like, oh man, Grandma, this is like so boring. Would you please stop? But you know what? It was all day long, all she thought about, all she wanted to talk about, all she wanted to pray about, and all she wanted to do was to pray for the Christians in Laos and Thailand. And she had scores of their names memorized, and many of the missionaries. And she would pray, oh, oh dear God, please. And she would just pray, and she would want me to pray, you know, and I'd be actually reading books and looking through things while she was praying. She couldn't tell because she was blind. And I, and I wasn't interested back in my early days. But you know what? All the time, sticking the tape in here. Come on, we've got to encourage these people. Send them this tape. That's all she could think about. I want to tell you, David's enemy uh, for the last 11 years, the number one threat in his life is now dead. His trials, the chases are over, but he doesn't care about that. He cares about God's name being dishonored. I'm telling you, when I read stuff like this, I don't know about you, but I wonder how much I even know about God. I wonder how far I am from really even getting anything. Because it's all my prayers are, oh, Lord, for me, for this church, for us, for our little group. Come on now, help us. And that's not the way our Lord was, and that's not the way a man of God is. A man of God is concerned about the glory of God even when it doesn't connect to himself. The question for me to ask myself is this. Would I be happy if Heritage Baptist Church down the street suddenly a major Holy Spirit, true Holy Spirit revival broke out? And thousands of people were getting saved, and the glory of God was filling the place. And it was just absolutely wonderful. Would I be happy and rejoice? Because if I wouldn't, then there's something wrong with me, you see? Or how about you, your competitor in business, or somebody who maybe is in competition with you in some area of your life, suddenly they get richly blessed. You can apply it the same way. 
I'll show you one more guy that was like this. His name was Paul. I want you to see this passage. Watch this. Paul said this. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is being put in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He said, look, it's okay. I'm in prison, I'm in chains, but it's okay. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true, get this, get this, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those that preach out of envy and rivalry, um, preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? What an attitude. Here's a man after the heart of God. He's in prison. And he's glad because the gospel's going forth. The whole palace guard's hearing the gospel. A bunch of young men are tied to me and they have to hear the gospel. But not only that, there is a group of gospel preachers out there. And those group of gospel preachers are saying things like this. You know, about, you know why Paul's in jail? Because God doesn't like him. You know what? Don't listen to his gospel. Listen to us. And there's a bunch of gospel preachers preaching Christ, criticizing Paul. And here's Paul. Here's a guy that's so sold out to the, to the glory of God. He says this. What does it matter? Look at The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Now tell me that there wasn't anything for us to take out of 2 Samuel chapter 1. And, and we're not done. I mean, this is as far as I got in first service. And I really want to go, the next point is the killer of all. But I'm just going to show it to you and then we'll close. And I, I guess what I'll do is I'll just preach on it tonight. I was going to preach on something else, so I'll just preach on it tonight. Get you to come back to church. If you have a heart for God, you have a deep concern for the glory of God, and also this. You'll have a gracious heart towards your enemies. I'll develop it more tonight, but I'll say this to you. Isn't it interesting? Not one bad thing is said about Saul in this whole lament. And isn't it interesting that God's name isn't mentioned in this whole lament? You know why God's name isn't mentioned? Because David said back in chapter 26, when Abishai was about to kill Saul while he was sleeping on the ground, and he said, just one blow, believe me, it won't take two. And he says, no, Abishai, God will take him out when it's the appropriate time. David very clearly knew that God in his sovereignty took Saul out, but he wasn't about to mention it in the poem. You know why you don't mention the thing like that in the poem? Because when you go to funerals, there are certain times you just don't open your mouth. We all know that, right? There are certain things you just don't say to be gracious, right? And David was so gracious towards his enemy that even in death, he says, I want, what a gracious heart, what a, what a heart of love. I want Saul to be remembered. I'm going to bring out all of his good points. Well, we'll pick up here tonight. There is one last point, the importance of true friends. But I'll develop those last two points in just a few minutes that I have tonight. I, we're also going to hear the Israel trip, and there's a bunch of baptism. There's a bunch of neat things going on tonight. My friends in the back covered up the clock so I couldn't see it. Not, not, not to ruin, I'll tell you. Uh, hey, not to ruin the moment, but in case you've been wondering, I, I w couldn't find my glasses this morning, and I thought, well, I had contacts at church, I could pop them in. got here at church, and I didn't have contacts. So I found these glasses, which when we founded the church 11 years ago, they were the original glasses of the church founding this church, I believe. And 
So I've just been wrestling with these all day. I really don't want you to see them on me for long because they're all cracked and broken. Um, just, that's just for visitors. If you've been here long, that's nothing new. Something like this happened here. That's nothing new. Okay. Okay, listen. Um, wild conclusion to my sermon. Usually have a little bit more suave conclusion than this. But I, I will tell you that um, I hope you come back tonight. It's going to be a great service. You'll hear people that have gotten saved give their testimony. You'll hear about the Israel trip. You'll hear the conclusion to this message. And, um, but I want to tell you this. If you're here and you have been touched by God because you realize you're very far from Him and you want some help, there is a way that you can become right with God even before you leave. You can have Christ as your Savior. And if you'd like to talk about that, come up and see me. Grab Steve. Grab one of the guys that you saw ushering. Say, I just want to know this Jesus. Could you explain him to me? And we'd be glad to talk with you right now or call the church this week. God bless you. Hope you're back at 6 o'clock. You're dismissed as soon as I get to the door. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.